Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to hear how God is using Adventure Church to speak into your life. If you've got a story to share, please do so by visiting adventure.church slash mystory. Also, if you'd like to support Adventure Church financially, you can do that by giving online and help us bring messages like this one to you each and every week. Today's message is from our series called We the People, in which we're discovering the purpose that you and I have while our nation looks to someone else to provide answers during this election year. That's right. What if we're waiting on someone else to repair something that you and I have been called to confront? Now let's prepare our hearts to hear a word from God. Well, we are in our We the People sermon series, and we're talking about, in light of the political season, in light of all the things that are happening in our world, and more specifically, within our nation, um, we're, we're trying to figure out who's got the answers. And it's, it's oftentimes not who we think has the answers. And so today, I want to jump right into the Word of God. I hope that's okay with you. I hope that's why you came. Is that cool with you? We're going to jump into a story that you know very, very well. And I've got a, a piece of bread that I'm going to help illustrate. And all the crumbs are just driving me nuts. I'm sorry. OCD. Okay, leave it alone, Jake. We are jumping into Mark 6, 6 through 7. It says, then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. We're fast forwarding to 31. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. How many of you know that's a bad situation when you don't have time to eat, okay? I always made sure my mom had food, okay? I did not want to see her hungry. Verse 32, so they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. I love what uh, Pastor Judas Smith says about this. He says, if the Savior of the world can take a time out and rest and recuperate, So can you, and so can I. In the busyness of all the things that we've got to do, we can find the time, if he could. That one's free. Verse 33, but many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. I like this part. It says that they saw them leaving. They saw them on boat. And they ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Did you know that God is looking for a people that aren't satisfied with watching God go by, right? God is looking for a people that jump off the sidelines, that go to where they see God is working. And again, I've got some good news. I think that's why we're all here. So I think we've got some exciting things that are going to happen in the moments ahead. Verse 34, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. We're far away and it's, it's getting late, like the OSU delayed game last night. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what? Or 21st century English translation, With what? With what? They asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all of these people. Jesus responds and says, how much bread do you have? And he says, go and find out. They came back and reported, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. He says, well, he says, all right. He tells all the disciples to sit down in groups on the grass, and they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. 
Jesus takes the five loaves, two fish, and looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish, and a total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. 5,000 men, and then in addition to that, the women and the children who, in that culture, were not counted. Today, I want to have um, my message in this, this conversation, don't worry, I'll do most of the talking, revolve around this question. What are you saved for? What are you saved for? Can we pause for a second and ask God to speak through his word? Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to talk about you. God, thank you, Jesus. Um, we've got a word, the word of the Lord, Lord God, that, that speaks into our hearts, God, and it's active, that it works, Lord. That when we come into your presence like we are right now, the Bible says your word will not return void, and which is good news for me, because, Lord, you can use me today, and I pray that you would just speak to our hearts, transform our lives. We want to be closer to you. I pray this in your name. Everyone said amen. Uh, I don't know what kind of kids you were, um, but I was a, a pretty horrible human being growing up. It's a pretty, you know, right? Let's just, you know, we're having a confessional here. You didn't know that's what you were in for. I'm just going to tell you all the bad things I've done. No, but between the ages of 5 and 12, I was just a terrible child. Maybe you want to try to relate, think back, um, you know, to when you were a kid. Some of you got to think back 10, 15, 20, some more years than that. We'll give you some time for a second. Okay, you're there. Great. What type of child were you? I was the type of child that got in a lot of trouble, made a lot of mistakes. And therefore, I had to develop um, a very, very special gift. I had to learn how to get good at saying the word sorry a lot, okay? And I did. I, I mean, I was an artist of the apology, okay? Do any of you parents, you know, you've got that, that kid that you're almost afraid to reprimand because you know that they're going to give you that look just in their eyes, and just in their eyes, they're going to look deep into your soul and say, you're a horrible parent for correcting me, right? Or maybe you got that little daughter, she's got the little quivering lip thing, like, right? You know, and so I was, I was and still am a very dramatic person. Um, if you haven't picked that up yet, you know, some of you new guests are like, did you drink your Red Bull? No, coffee, caffeine-free, trying to cut that out. Um, but I'm a fairly dramatic person, and I'd like to think that it's been used for good. I mean, I was the prince in the Prince and the Pauper play when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> no big deal. And I have the DVD of that, if you'd like to get a listen, okay? I made my fiancé watch it. It was one of our prerequisites to marriage. She needed to know what she was getting. Um, So as a dramatic person, I like to think that that's been used for a lot of good, but when I was a kid, that very same gift was in the hands of the devil. And and my parents kind of had to pay for it. And so I developed this technique of saying sorry that I like to call the can't-breathe cry. Have you heard about this? Have you ever experienced this? Where you are crying so emphatically that it is as if you are hyperventilating and cannot breathe, right? It's as if your lungs shut off. So I get in trouble, you know, case in point, the time that I was out with my friends in the woods next to my parents' house and probably around the age of 10. And and they thought, you know, man, you know what makes this Saturday great is if we could burn some stuff, right? You know, Jake, man, any chance you could get some matches? And we could just, I mean, we got leaves, we got trees, let's burn it. 
And of course, I'm like, I would love to feel accepted. Yes, I can go get those matches. So I go grab some matches. We start burning some stuff. And of course, my mom wasn't too keen on the whole idea. And so she starts, you know, getting at me. What are you, what are you thinking? Like it hasn't rained in like weeks and you are burning stuff? Like what is in your head? And I would just, <laughs> okay, you know. I'm so, so sorry. You know, she like backs up a little bit like, here, here's the matches. Burn it all, you know. Or the time that I threw a couple of our cats off the 10-foot deck on the back of my parents' house. I preface this story by saying I was a horrible child, okay? So hold your catnip. I can assure you no cats were hurt in the making of this story, okay? That myth that, that cats always land on four paws, it's actually true, okay? They all landed, okay, except for Pinky. She didn't walk too straight after that day, okay? But that's besides the fact. My parents are like, you're throwing living animals like these are our pets. Yes, we make them stay outside because we can't handle their dandruff, but these are our pets. What are you thinking? And of course, I'm, oh, I can't. I'm so sorry. And I, you know, sometimes that wouldn't work. I'd have to keep pushing it, have to kind of create a, a, an exaggerated situation. So I'm just, I'm just so bored. You know, dad's gone working all day. <laughs> Wish I had a more present father figure. Okay, he'll take off Fridays. Okay, just stop. Or the time that I thought it'd be a brilliant idea to make a floor, flowing stream for my G.I. Joes to play in by using a liquid that was in a red can in my parents' garage. Okay, gasoline, for those of you who are still trying to catch up. Um, And so I'm pouring gasoline down the driveway so that my G.I. Joes can have something to float in, okay? And the fire department shows up, I kid you not. The fire department, and of course, I was in Germantown, Wisconsin. They didn't have anything better to do. So they've like got five trucks coming up, like, you know, it's just, this is a huge event. You know, the the newspaper is out there. What's going on? Boy spills gasoline down driveway. What happens next? You know? And, and of course, they're trying to clean it up. I still, to this day, have no idea what they did to clean it up. Like, I don't know if we have any firefighters here. Like, do you have a vacuum or something? Like, what happened there? But well, I, I, I didn't get to see it because at, at the time, my parents were, of course, yelling at me. <laughs> what are you thinking? Like, Jacob, what, like, seriously, like, I, I, we don't understand why you would do this. It's 95 degrees out. Like, are you kidding? I, I just, I'm just sorry, you know. I just wish you would have bought me the seven-foot aircraft carrier. You know, that's $250, but, you know. Okay, all right, you know what? Here, again, here's the matches. Go burn it all, right? I got really, really good at saying sorry. And I found out, interestingly enough, that if you get really, really good at saying sorry, and you also get really, really good at projecting a very sorry identity about yourself, that the world will not only let you get out of stuff, but they actually will just kind of leave you alone. Like, if you get really good at not only taking the blame, but just projecting a, a, an identity of being a blamed individual, people are just like, you know, don't ask him to do anything. We're not going to expect anything from you, you know? For those of you that hate helping family and friends move. Do you want to know how you get out of it? Drop a lamp, all right? That's all it takes, one lamp, and word will spread. You'll never get asked again to help your friends and family move. Amen, Amen. all right, that's sweet. And so so I take on this blame, and the world just kind of leaves you alone. And, And unfortunately, I think that's sometimes how the church and we as Christians get viewed by the world around us. 
Because we're so very, very good at saying sorry, right? Isn't that like the pinnacle of our relationship with God where we just take the blame? You're a horrible human. Own it. And so we do. And we are so genuinely sorry for the things that we've done and and, and the people that we can so many times easily become. But anything beyond our sorry selves, the world just doesn't expect much. Because the truth is, Taking the blame is very easy. It really is. Some people have a hard time with this. But taking the blame is is very easy because it simply requires you to receive and accept that you were or did something wrong. Whereas, on the other side of the spectrum, you have this very, very scary thing called responsibility, which is daunting and difficult because it would require us to believe that we could actually do and be something right. And sadly, sadly, I think that we become a people that are free from our wrongdoings. We're free from our sin, but we are not yet accessing the liberty to be anything more than that. We are not yet liberated to do good, to live righteously, and impact the world around us. And consequently, we so easily become a a people that are good at saying sorry, And we've generously received God's salvation, but we never truly know what we were saved for. And the disciples can relate. The disciples can relate because they're they're walking around with Jesus and and they're watching Jesus work and this is an amazing situation. But, But the disciples can relate to this whole sorry cycle. Because for hundreds and hundreds of years leading up to Jesus' presence and his death on the cross and beating the grave, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the religious system was one of a sorry cycle that involved a three-step process. You would live and you would try to keep the law. You would inevitably sin and fall. And you would say sorry and apologize, and it would just go round and round and round. You would live, you try to keep all the rules, you try not to do all the things that God told you not to do, you would eventually do the very things that God told you not to do. You would sin, and then you would wind up at the altar saying sorry by way of sacrificing an innocent third party. And the cycle just would keep going around and around, and as a result, it created a life that was desperately trying to maintain right relationship with God rather than a life that is empowered by a right relationship with God. And so as Jesus had done so many times with his disciples, he is about to expand their thinking. He's about to jar the system. And he's about to illustrate that there is, in fact, a life beyond sorry. We're jumping back into the text here. Mark six thirty-five through 36. The disciples say, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that you, or so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Here we we see that the disciples have the very same gift that you and I and dare I say our entire country has, and it's the gift to be able to point out the need. It's the gift to be able to point out the problem. Like, let's just be honest. Let's have some real talk. If I had a chair, i put up at least one leg. You know, aren't we so good at, like, pointing out the problems in our country? Like, have you been on Facebook, you know, a.k.a. the Problem Solving Network? Sense the sarcasm. 
We see the problems. There's, 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 no, there's no problem with awareness. And there was no problem with awareness for the disciples either because the need was staring them in the eyes. The need was anywhere between eight and 15,000 groaning stomachs. They saw the need, but because they could not fathom a true solution, they come to Jesus with their brilliant way of taking care of the need and the problem. Send it away. Tell, tell them to leave. Does this, does this prayer sound familiar? Dear, dear God, God, I've got some issues at work. Um, you know, this, this boss of mine, it's, just, it's a problem. It's, dif- it's a difficult situation. So if you could just, you know, you know just, uh, <clears throat> just get rid of them for me, God. You know, transfer, whatever you want to do. I'm not telling you how to do your job, right? You know, as if God is some hitman for our problems. Dear God, you know, I'm, I'm, our finances are, are just, they're in shambles. And we're really trying to make it work. And so if you could just, you know, make, you know, this, this uh, huge amount of credit card debt disappear. I don't know how it got here. I mean, it's probably linked to her number, you know. If you just, just get, get rid of that. But Jesus has this very, very funny way of making us deal with the very problems that you and I try to evade. The disciples come up to him and they're like, hey, here's the situation. We've got a need. I say we just tell them to get going. But instead of granting their request, Jesus shakes the whole go get your God for all of your problems system and he jars the whole blame but no responsibility cycle with a response to them that is quite possibly the scariest way that Jesus and God answers our prayers. He says, you feed them. Verse 37. You do it. They came to the right person, right? They, they, they told the right person about the problem, and, and yet Jesus turns and says, actually, you fix it. You take care of it. And so again, the disciples respond, with What? We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. And we find out here that the disciples who had just earlier in chapter 6 been commissioned by God two by two to go and, and uh, you know, cast out evil spirits and heal the blind and heal the sick. They had been doing the work of God, but here now that they're with Jesus, they are back into this mentality of watching God work. They are stuck watching God work. Can I tell you that there's a couple different types of faiths? There's the type of faith, there's the level of faith where we are willing to wait and watch God work. And this is a good level. If this is where you're at, say it's a good level. There's a time and a season and a place for it where we are just like, we step away and we say, all right, God, I got to watch you do something. You're going to have to show up here. I need you. Would you do something about this? But then there is another level of faith that says, you know what, I'm not just going to wait and watch God work. I'm going to pray to God and say, God, how would you like to work through me? And God mercifully answers our prayers so many times. And and, I mean, just the fact that you and I are living and breathing within this room is a sign of God's grace. Because I'm pretty sure you weren't sitting there this whole time going, all right, lungs, okay, breathe hard, okay, keep that going for the next few minutes, okay, uh, breathe, okay, like, he holds us together. 
without us even asking so many times. But sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when we come to God with a need and a problem, his answer is, actually, you are the answer to your own prayer. You come to me to do something about it, but in fact, actually, the answer is in your own hands. But ironically, when God does call us to be the answer to our own prayers, it will require us to provide for a need that is far beyond anything that we have. It requires, it would require what we do not have in order to make it happen. And here Jesus kind of breaks down the how to make a miracle 101, and he starts with the very, very first ingredients that he so oftentimes uses, and he starts with what you have. What do you have? How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. And I can imagine the the disciples just so sheepishly, you know, displaying what they found, right? I mean, it's just like, this is it. This is all we've got. Because in light of the need around them, what they have, they know is not enough. They know that what they have cannot go the distance, and yet that is what Jesus and God chooses to work with. He chooses to work with the things that you and I call never enough. He chooses to work through your inadequacies. He chooses to work with your shortcomings and your past. Sometimes the things that we spend our whole life just trying to run from, God is like, would you just put it in my hands? Would you just, oh, if you just give that to me. So many times we, we, we come and we say sorry and we accept God into our life and then we spend the whole uh, amount of the rest of our lives trying to run from our past and forget like it ever happened. He's like, ooh, I'd give purpose to your past if you put that in my hands. What they had was never enough. I love that the Gospel of John gives us a little bit more insight on who actually provided the five loaves of bread and the two fish and it was a little boy who, like I said, was not even counted within the people that were there. Yes, God will use the very things that you discount and disregard. But as God calls us to give what we have, what we will find out is that what we have is also the very thing that we need. Because again, the Gospel of John says that the boy brought forth not just any bread, but barley bread, which this is not. This is sourdough, and it's delicious, and if I don't get my hands all over it, I'm probably going to eat it later. That's right, no, no gluten. Okay. Um, it says he gives away barley bread, which was the type of bread eaten by only the poorest of people. And so can you please just imagine for a second, you are a little boy or a little girl, and you have just given what your family needs. Not just your own sack lunch, but perhaps this little boy was out there away from his family and, and he was coming back with dinner for his family and yet he gives out of his need. Do you know that the fact that you are in need of encouragement may make you the prime candidate to encourage someone else? Did you know that the fact that you are going through something so hard and difficult may make you the perfect person to speak life into someone else? 
Because I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really, really hard to hear truth and life and hope from people that are far beyond the problem. But when you're in a problem and you choose to speak through your problem and you choose to speak into other people's lives, man, that connects with me. That connects with me. I can receive that. Not because I know that you got through it, but that you're in it. Oh, how contagious your faith could be. How, how powerful God could work through your need. In light of the need, the disciples knew that what they had was never enough. And in light of our country's needs, our family's needs, your marriage's needs, your children's needs, what you have is never enough. But the things that we hold on to and keep away from Jesus because we know that they're never enough are the very, very things that he is calling us to hand over. And so Jesus receives the bread and the fish and he divides the thousands of people into groups of 50 and 100. I love this detail here showing that structure and order and positioning matter to God. Perhaps you are on the flip side of this and you don't have any sack lunch and you are one of those people and you've come in here starving and you're hungry and you're listening to God talk to you all day but the hunger keeps welling up within you and it's time to feed you but you refuse to get into the position to receive what God wants to provide. Where God has told you, okay, I I know, I know you want peace. So get out of that relationship. You've got to step from that. I can't give you what you need if you stay there. I I, I know, I I know that your finances are are in shambles. I know it's hard. But I can't bless you as long as you sit in your selfishly spending habits. I want to. Would you just get in your group? I'd love to give you bread. I'd love to provide for you. I'd love to provide. And he's been telling you where you need to go and what you need to do, but it's just so hard because we always want God to bless us where we are at. And let me just talk about myself because this will be kind of harsh, but so many times in my life, I am the four-year-old that sits down in the middle of the kitchen floor and says, no, (laughs) no. No, you come here, God. You come here. And he's like, nope, I need you in your group. Jesus takes the bread. He breaks it. He looks to the heavens and he blesses it and he begins to distribute it through the disciples. And a miracle is made. I want to give you, I want to point out three things that I think are so valuable about this story. And if you've been asleep all this time, this is a good place to wake up because if you walk away with these three things, you're good. The first thing I want to point out is that you were, in fact, saved for something. You were saved for something. There is a life of responsibility beyond taking the blame. And again, I'm not here to demean or deprecate redemption and forgiveness and what God so generously did for us that he covered our sins. What I am saying here is that God wants us to know that there is a life beyond that. That our lives are no longer designed to sit in our blame and constantly go around in this cycle of just, are we cool, God? Are we cool? 
Are we good? You know, and anytime God speaks to you, the only thing that you figure he's come for is an apology. I've gotten so good at saying sorry and so used to taking the blame and making errors that sometimes my parents would call my name out. And my first reaction was, I'm sorry! What'd I do? And he wants to empower responsibility into our lives. And responsibility has kind of a negative connotation, right? Nobody wants more responsibility, right? I didn't start the message off with, who wants more responsibility? You all would have left. All right? I'm very strategic. Responsibility's got a negative connotation because oftentimes it describes what we have to do, what we have to do. And here's the truth. Sometimes when God calls you to give something, yes, it is going to feel like you have to do it. But when you do, when you hand it over to him, when you allow God to work in your life and you start to see the patterns, you start to see the patterns that God works in, all of a sudden, what was so hard to hand over to him and what was so difficult to let go of, you're like, here, I know what you can do. I know what you can do with this. You are saved for something. Very intentional about using the word something. Not very epic and, you know, motivating, right? You were saved for something. Just do it, right? But that little boy, when he woke up that morning, did not know what he had been saved for. He did not know what God was going to do through his little lunch. Sometimes God will call you to do something and and you're not ever going to know the impact that it made that boy had no idea the second thing is this God will work with what you have God will work with what you have I find it interesting that Jesus says what do you have and then he says go and find out sometimes you've got to do some searching to see what God wants you to use sometimes it's not right there in front of you which I think is why life groups are so so important Because sometimes the calling and the gifting, the provision that is within you, you have a hard time seeing it. And so you need people around you that can identify what's in you. Go and find out. I think it's really, really good news that he asked for what they had, not what they didn't have. And this is where we get stuck sometimes where, you know, some of us get frustrated. I get frustrated that God calls for everything. He wants us to give everything But what you'll find is that it's really good news that he does not call us for things that we don't have. Now, that would not be a good God. To ask us to to hand over things that we don't have within our hands. To call us to become or or be people that like we are not. Now, here's the thing. God may call you to become someone that you are not yet, but do you know where he will start? Who you are. With what you have. David was crowned to be king of Israel long before he ever wore a crown. David was anointed to be king while he was taking care of sheep. Do you know how the path turned to the throne? He gave over what he had. And the last thing and perhaps the most difficult thing of all, God can't multiply what you refuse to let him manage. Jesus breaks the bread and he, he gives it to the disciples to distribute. And if, if, if I'm that little boy, I'm calling an audible and screaming no because what I have just given away is not coming back. What are you doing? 
the bread seems to move maybe further and further from the very origin of where it came. I think we get caught sometimes where we do, we, we put it out there, but then God starts to work in a mysterious way and he starts doing some confusing things with what we just handed over. And as a result, we're like, no, whoa, didn't know you were gonna do that, God. But he can't multiply it if you won't let him manage it. And as a result, thousands upon thousands and thousands, they had leftovers, which I think, you know, is just kind of God's funny and just, you know, um, joking way of saying that when you give what is not enough, it'll yield more than enough. But he can't multiply what you and I don't let him manage. I remember... um, Back when I was a kid and when I wasn't burning stuff, um, I was actually a cute kid. And, uh, and as a result, my dad wanted to spend time with me. And this has got to be one of the earliest childhood memories that I've got. And I, I remember my dad cutting the lawn. I remember him, you know, getting out there on the tractor. And, and my parents had anywhere between like six and eight acres of grass to mow. And so my dad didn't have this like little Toro, or rather, you know, simplicity tractor, but rather he had this big 72-inch deck Toro Groundsmaster. And I'd watch him on this thing. And it was just like, you know, as a four-year-old, it's my box. Like, look at my dad. Like, look what he's doing. I mean, look at that machine and how he's maneuvering it. It had a steering wheel with a doorknob on it, so you could just one-hand it. And I'm like, that is so cool. And my dad comes to me and says, hey, well, hop up on, you know, my lap. Let's go. And, and so there we were, me and my dad, cutting the grass. This is awesome. I'm here. I'm with him. I like it. But I'll never forget the two words that he said that were both exciting and terrifying was when he looked at me and said, all right, now you try. And he put his hands on, my hands on the wheel, and, and I began to turn it, you know, probably ran over a couple trees that he'd been trying to grow. And as, and as childish as that is, I really do think that that's what God is trying to say to a lot of us. It's so comfortable to watch God work. It's so comfortable to sit here in our salvation and not ever know what we were saved for. And it seems so scary to step from that safe place and move into this scary thing called responsibility, into what is really an adventurous way of living for God. And he's saying, hey, why don't you try? And what I love about that picture is that all the while, my dad was in control. All the while, he was operating the machine. He may have been letting me in and saying, hey, you do this. I'm empowering you not to do it. But he knew what was going on. And the same confidence should be shared amongst us that we can go and we can boldly do and work for God, not because we need salvation, not because we need right standing, but because we are right. I don't know about you, but I want that. Can we stand up together? We're going to get into some worship here and our prayer team is going to make their way to the back and they'd love to pray with you if you this has been sitting heavy on your heart and you just want someone to agree with you and pray with you i would love for you to to go back there but these two songs were chosen very specifically we want god to do 
miracles. But first, we have to give him everything that we have.